They're two pretty tough readings for a beautiful Sunday morning. The second reading, if you've ever heard it before in church, you may have heard the idea that a talent could be equated with the talents that you and I have. It's really just a lexicographical accident. A talent was, was just a piece of money. But the idea that we should have talents and that we use, should use them for good is not a bad thing. Problem is, what happens if we don't? Well, those who have, more will be given. And those who have nothing, even that will be taken away from them. And they'll be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Surely we need a better reading of this story than hoping that if we use our talents well enough, we can avoid a bit of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need a reading that makes sense of Jesus' whole ministry because this is a really tough story. There's two things that tell us there's something wrong with this particular reading of the story. That is that we should use our talents well and if we don't, we should watch out. One is that we're talking here about slaves. People who were owned like cattle. People who had no agency, who could do nothing of their own. They were owned like pieces of machinery. And to one, it says the slave owner gives five talent. Well, you don't give a slave anything. You command a slave to do what it is that you want done. And these slaves, they knew the score. Remember the third slave says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. And the master doesn't refute that. Everybody knows this is what slave owners do because this is what slave owners can do. No one can tell you what to do with your stuff. It's your stuff. Just do whatever you like with it. The other thing that's wrong with this, the, the original reading of this story is that we're talking about huge amounts of money. We're possibly talking about a talent being about a million and a half Australian dollars. So five talents is seven and a half million dollars. This is enormous sums of money. And the first question you've got to ask is, where did the money come from? It's the question you've got to ask when you visit a stately home, if you have the privilege of doing so, in places like England. Where did the money come from? The statue of Edward Colson, the slave trader, you might remember, got tossed into the harbour in Bristol in 2020 because people said, we no longer need a bronze statue of a man who owned people and treated them like cattle. A harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. We know how it goes. We don't know what's the motivation for the first, first two slaves to make so much money. And again, where did it come from? But we know that they would have known what would have happened that did happen to the third slave being thrown into outer darkness. That's a motivation, if ever there was one. 
Because, of course, it doesn't belong to the slaves. Nothing belongs to a slave. Everything a slave has or does belongs to the slave owner. I think we have to read this story as the third slave being a whistleblower. We've had whistleblowers in the news again this week with David McBride, the army lawyer, who exposed war crimes in the Australian Defence Force. And it's likely, given the way the trial seems to be, it's possible that he could be punished more than the war criminals. That's what can happen to whistleblowers. We need a review and a renewal of whistleblower laws in this country. The government has promised to do so, but so far we've not seen very much more than a discussion paper. Whistleblowers are truth-tellers. A harsh man reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. That's the truth of it. A whistleblower stands up and tells the truth at great cost. Those of you who are listening to this on a podcast, you won't have seen, but in the front cover of our order of service here, we've got the David picture of the death of Socrates, which has always been put up as one of these great moments of courage, speaking out against the status quo, even as he reaches for the hemlock that is his Uh, He's been condemned to drink and to die. It's always at great cost. It's a great cost here too. For those who have much, more will be given. For those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And you will be called a worthless slave. Wicked and lazy. That's what happens to whistleblowers. So why did he bury it in the ground though? Why didn't he do what the master said even a silly and wicked slave would do, which at least is put it in the bank and it'll get some interest at the moment, more than we've had for a long time. Did he do it out of fear? Well, he does say he was afraid. But if he was truly afraid, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he just put it in the bank? That makes most sense. Fear here can often mean being afraid. But another thing it can mean, and in Old English we use it this way, fear of the Lord. It doesn't mean being afraid of. It means reverence, to treat somebody with deference. What if when he says here he is in fear, he's paying deference. He's showing reverence. He's... Showing reverence and deference to the talent, to the money that is being given. That's his job as a slave. And that's the world in which he lives. That money is put above everything else. It's so important that it doesn't matter who you damage to get it, how harsh you are, how much you reap where you didn't sow, how much you scatter, how much you take seed where you didn't scatter it. The most important thing is money. I think this whistleblower is enacting a so-called reverence for this piece of money, just like his owner wants him to do. Puts money above everything else. It's so important that he buries it in the ground. 
Why is he buried in the ground? Because the most important things in the world are buried in the ground. Seed. Without seed, no crops. Without crops, no people. You can call it what you like. The most fundamental thing we have to eat. And if you bury it in the ground and it comes up and we eat it, that's fantastic. That's how we live. That's how we've always lived. You can be a money mover. You can be a stockbroker. You can be all of those things. And you won't produce anything of worth unless something goes in the ground and grows. He's from an agricultural society. Everybody listening to Jesus the first time around was, was from an agricultural society. They knew that the most important thing in the world was what you put into the ground, how you cared for it, and what you got back from it. Hand-to-mouth existence. He puts this in the ground and nothing happens. You know that old Cree, the Cree tribe from the, what is now Canada, that quote, you may have heard it many times, only when the last tree has died and the last river has been poisoned and the last fish has been caught will we realise that we cannot eat money. The third slave, you can imagine, saying, I planted your so precious money in the ground. And what grew? Nothing. Nothing grew. You know why it didn't grow? Because it can't. What you've given me is counterfeit. It's not real life. It's not what life is consisting of. You can put it in the ground for as long as you like and nothing will grow. You can have large amounts of money, but it will destroy community. It will destroy people. And this is what's happening in first century Galilee. Galilee was in tremendous upheaval. The Romans and the Herodians, that's the group of the, the kind of friends of Rome who were running the country, they were building a huge city called Sepphoris, a huge marble-encrusted city, just miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus lived, and from the rest of Galilee. And all the resources were being sucked into it, and sucked into the town of Caesarea Maritima on the coast, the great Roman fortress. The whole of the economy was being upended. It was being given to the rich and taken from the poor. Those who had much, more will be given. Those who have little, even that will be taken away. That's exactly what was happening in that world. And you can read any economic story of our time and the same thing is happening. Those who have much are getting more. We still have a government committed to a stage three tax cut which will give the rich an enormous amount of money and the poor almost nothing. Meanwhile, we have to cut back on infrastructure programs. Why? Because we can't afford it. Why do we not increase the job allowance for those who are unemployed? Because we can't afford it. For those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, those who have nothing those who have nothing, even that will be taken away from them. But this isn't the world of Jesus. This isn't the holistic understanding Jesus has of the world. Blessed are the poor, Jesus said. Because they inherit the entire world, the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, for they will be satisfied. 
they will be filled. This is not a story about how hard we have to work to use our talents in order not to end up in outer darkness. This is a story of reversal. It's the story of standing up for truth, standing up for what is real, for having courage to say that to ourselves, to each other and to our community. The world that Jesus brings into being, the world that he says we need to stay awake for, is not the world that Zephaniah prophesies in that first reading. That terrible idea of the whole destruction of his culture, which is in fact what happens. It's not that world. It's not the world of inhumanity to each other. It's not the world where some of us have to be sacrificed on the altar of unemployment in order that inflation can be brought under control. There are other ways of doing it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right, because they will receive it. Amen.